Good morning and welcome to the Transparency Project radio podcast on the Inside Lens Network with programming dedicated to bringing attention to unsolved homicides, suspicious deaths, and other topics of interest to our audience. My name is Denny Griffin and my co-host is Delilah Jones of Imagine Publicity. Good morning, Delilah. Good morning, Denny. And I just want to say to our listeners that a lot of the podcasts that we have on the Inside Lens Network, as Denny said, are going to highlight criminal cases. Some are cold cases. Some are still open investigations. And our intent is to allow our guests to present information for consideration by you, the listener. Our podcasts and hosts in no way represent our guests. We do not claim to solve cases, nor do we wish to jeopardize any open investigations. Our guests present their own information, and while we may suggest resources and assistance, we are not liable for their subsequent actions. Um, You know, we've got, oh gosh, 700 and some odd shows that we've recorded over the years and many of the cases we've been able to see some resolution, but many of them cold, cold cases. And, you know, I'm looking forward to our guest today um, to offer some information and resources. Thank you, Lila. And speaking of today's guest, today's program is the first in a series in which we'll discuss the cold case epidemic in the United States and some of the problems the survivors of victims of murder and suspicious death have to face in their search for answers and justice. Our panelists for this show are Sarah Stein and John Drowick. Dr. Sarah Stein is a consultant and co-founder for the Center for the Resolution of Unresolved Crime. Her areas of expertise include cold cases, victimology, suspectology, behavioral and crime scene analysis, missing persons, interviews and interrogations, the social phenomenon of missing white women syndrome, and how the influence of politics can affect progress and outcomes of unresolved cases. And also joining us is John Drowick. He has been a Massachusetts attorney for over 20 years. He's a retired detective lieutenant for the Massachusetts State Police, where he was a supervisor in crime scene response and internal affairs investigator. John also was assigned as an instructor in law as a member of the Massachusetts State Police Academy. Sarah and John are co-authors of the new book, Who Took Molly Bish? Good morning to both of you, and thanks for joining us again today. Good morning, Denny and Delilah. Thank you so much for having us today. Good morning, Denny. Good morning, Delilah. Again, thank you for having us this morning. I'd uh, I'd like to start off uh, something relatively new, at least new to me, that uh, I just encountered over the last few days, and that is the problems people are having uh, trying to get an outside or another police agency to take a look at a potentially botched investigation done by the initial handling agency. And what I encountered in New York State was that the New York State police, uh, of course, have jurisdiction uh, within the state, but they will not, in fact, cannot take a, take a look at a, <clears throat> an unresolved case or a cold case that that may have had uh, the investigation may have been questionable as far as scope and quality. They can only come in and take a look if they are invited in by the handling agency. And in the case I'm involved with, um, that's not going to happen. And I can understand why. Uh, you know, if there are issues, if perhaps the investigation wasn't quite up to speed. Uh, you don't necessarily want an outside agency coming in and, and, and doing a second look or looking at your work. The unfortunate thing is the survivor is now deprived of a chance to get answers and justice for their deceased loved one because they can't get a second look. Uh, they can't get somebody else to take a look at the case. So it's very frustrating and um I posted on the Transparency Project a Facebook page about that issue, and I've gotten responses from several other states that go through the same thing. Uh, they could, uh, and this apparently 
is a is a policy. It's uh, they can only come in if invited in by the uh, handling agency or perhaps the district attorney for that jurisdiction. Uh, and in New York, short of that, the only way around it is if they can uh, to get an order from the attorney general's office or the governor's office. So now you're into politics. Um, which has its own <laughs> drawbacks uh, to, to me, at least. But anyway, uh, <laughs> I, I wanted to address that issue to start with, and and see if uh, either or both of you are familiar with that, and if you have any thoughts on this, uh, because I supposedly this is a quote unquote justice system, and mm-hmm. when you're denying a fair shake to a to a survivor to get that justice. It just rankles me, so I'd appreciate your comments. Mm-hmm. I completely understand your feeling, Denny, because I have the exact same feelings of frustration um, when working with certain law enforcement agencies. Um, you know, one of the reasons that I started this new series of books, Jack and I started this series, When Criminal Justice Fails, is to address issues like that uh, where agencies are not allowed to come in unless they're invited by the handling agency. And that is so deplorable uh, in the sense that there is so much to be gained by working with other agencies and other experts. And I can understand where law enforcement is coming from in the sense that They don't want their mistakes known. They don't want um, certain things about the investigation exposed. But, you know, a lot of times those faults in the investigation are not the fault of the detectives who are currently assigned to them. And, in fact, they aren't anybody's fault. The, The way I start with law enforcement agencies is to say to them, because they always try to justify to me, you know, oh, things weren't handled right back then, and I'm sorry, and and they get very flustered and apologetic, and I say, listen, this is nobody's fault. We have the information we have today to work with, and it's not about finding fault, so let's just do it, and I wish so much that ego could be put aside in order to affect the resolution of these cases. Uh, Jack, what do you think about that? Uh, I agree, um, you know, with Sarah and and you, Denny. Um, I think that for so long, um, families have, you know, trusted the investigating agency. And, you know, from my experience, uh, coming from a very large agency, uh, very seldom um, were other people allowed into the investigation um, and I really don't understand the logic behind it. Um, I know that the investigation needs to have, um, you know, confidentiality in there. And but if someone is coming in as an expert and is willing to sign a confidentiality agreement, you know, that argument basically, you know, goes out as to you know whether the investigation will be compromised. Of course, it's not. If you know, unless the person would violate that confidentiality agreement. Um, my experience in Massachusetts is that. You know, under Massachusetts law, the district attorney of, of jurisdiction has um, the power over a homicide investigation, and unfortunately, that's you know the politics of murder. And, and you know, the district attorneys do not want anyone solving their cases other than themselves, simply because come election time, that's going to make them look bad if they're not solving cases that are brought to them. Uh, so I think you know egos have a little bit to do with it, but unfortunately, um, it's the families that are suffering from that, and and not the district attorneys. Mm-hmm. And Denny, just to add one thing, there was a very interesting article put out in 2019 uh, that was written by Detective Sally Walter of the Michigan State Police, and the title of it was "Notes from the Field: A Multi-Jurisdictional Team Moved Cold Cases to the Front Burner." And this was a success story, and this is what I wish so many more agencies would do. They combined state, county, local law enforcement, and they put this team together, and they had remarkable success uh, in regards to solving these cold cases. And it's just, 
in my opinion, it's an opportunity missed if the law enforcement agency does not want other people to view the file because that other agency or that analyst might see the one thing that they haven't been seeing for however many years that case has been cold. Yes, and uh, like John mentioned too, the uh, you know you have egos involved in these things. And uh, I, what what I am proposing, and this is a work in progress because it's it's like I said, it's fairly new to me. But um, what I'm pr- proposing in New York, or thinking about asking our uh, local assemblymen, uh, state assemblymen, is a proposal for for an appeals process, uh, if you will, that mm-hmm. uh, if a person feels that they have been shortchanged on the investigation and that there were, you know, leads not followed up on and uh, and there were problems, that perhaps some like a tribunal or panel operating out of the Attorney General's office uh, under the purview of the Attorney General uh, to hear or to review the case and then make a decision as to whether there is a legitimate concern or concerns, and if so, assign the next agency up, in our case, would be the state police, to uh, to go in and take a look. Because currently, the that is one way to get it done, is if the Attorney General's office issues an order. So, so if uh, somebody operating under the purview of the Attorney General uh, may be a solution uh, or help or, or give the people somewhere to go. Right now they have nowhere to go. They're, they're stuck. Right. So right. that's, that's something we're considering, but that's uh, like I say, it's a work in progress, but I think it's an issue that does have to be addressed because it's not fair. And um, the, the, the people who have been contacting me on uh, the transparency project, Facebook page and, uh, and by email and so forth are, are, Frust- just totally frustrated, and again, they they're at a dead end. They feel they have nowhere to go, nowhere to appeal. Right. It's just they take it right. on the chin. So, okay, well, I feel better know, having Denny, it. <laughs> uh, no, you know, Denny, just to speak to that, I want our listeners to know that we can't understand what you have been through as a family member losing a loved one in such a horrific way. But we as credentialed outside experts, uh, for me personally, I have never worked in law enforcement. I have consulted for police departments. But we share your frustration uh, being independent consultants because unless that law enforcement agency wants us in there, we are not going to get in there. And even if there is an appeals process, I think it's a great idea to do an appeals process. But what would concern me about that is that, again, there's still politics involved. And I think a solution, uh, one um, solution is something that has been done in Utah Uh, Interestingly, it's called the Utah Criminal Tracking Analysis Project, UTAP. And what they do is they work with a board of experts to address these cold cases constantly so no one case goes cold. And to start those investigations correctly from the beginning is so important. You know, it's it's just critical. Well, one quick question. You know, a lot of, of what you're speaking about is kind of a, a mindset and a culture that we see throughout law enforcement yes, agencies no, all over the country in that it's a territorial culture. And I don't know what the solution is, but it seems to me if kind of – Open open the borders, open everything yes. up between agencies that, you know, maybe it comes to a, a central clearinghouse or something. I mean, we've, we've got technology. We can do all kinds of things. So, you know, we, we NCIC, everybody can 
access that. Everybody can get the information. All of the law enforcement agencies can. So what what's the big deal about keeping everything close to the vest when you're in law enforcement? We've got to change that culture somehow. Mm-hmm. You go ahead, Jack, and I'll, I'll follow up. I, I have to agree with you, and one of the one of the things is is that there's established case law throughout the United States where information that is shared between police agencies um, is considered confidential with the newest agency getting that information. Uh, so, you know, if we're in a society now that's very mobile, and crime does cross jurisdictions, so it's it's very important to share information. Um, when law enforcement agencies and agencies that gather intelligence don't share information, tragedy can result. We saw that on the federal level with 9-11. Um, you know, we've heard reports that if all of these agencies had shared information that might have been identified, you know, that threat might have been identified well before um, that tragedy occurred. And my view is, is that if agencies have information that can help other agencies with their cases, that should be freed uh, freely you know, disseminated between them, and it is protected by case law. Um, it can be used for search warrant applications. Um, it's considered firsthand knowledge uh, because it's police agencies, you know, investigators sharing information. So I, I really don't understand, you know, from, in being a formal law enforcement officer, why um, trust um, doesn't occur um, between agencies. Um, I know in some agencies it does. Um, some agencies are very open to uh, sharing information, and I also know that some of them, uh, you know, are very, very closed uh, with any type of dissemination of information. They'll, they'll gather as much information as they can from the outside, but they're not willing to share it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that is the problem. And, I, and again, I think it's, it's kind of like a jurisdictional um, ego thing where we're not going to let anyone solve our case except for us because if anyone else comes in and solves it, um, it makes us look bad. Um, and again, a lot of these investigators are working directly for elected politicians. And, and again, I think, you know, the politics of murder is, is that if someone else comes in and, and does their job for them, um, it's going to make them look bad on the day that the ballot box is open. And just to follow up with that, Delilah, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, I, I am a very small woman. Uh, I am five one and a half. I'm a hundred pounds soaking wet, and so being a, especially a female, outside consultant, um, typically the patriarchal order of law enforcement uh, doesn't particularly like that. Uh, but once you know, I work with agencies so successfully, and we're able to break down those, uh, you know, cultural beliefs uh, that they have. And there was an article uh, by Nola Joyce uh, in 2016. She's the former deputy commissioner of the Philadelphia Police Department. She was never actually a sworn law enforcement individual, but she said that she experienced Uh, the beliefs that you're talking about. Uh, Number one, that if you haven't worn a badge, you're an outsider with no knowledge of policing and you should not be in there in the first place. And the second belief that's connected to that is that there's a belief in law enforcement um, that is, I wouldn't say pervasive, but it's certainly far-reaching, that it's as long as someone has worn a badge, they're qualified to do any type of policing work uh, regardless of their proficiency or knowledge. And that those are Miss Joyce's words. And she said those two beliefs are remarkably limited. And I completely agree with that. It's We've just got to break down this barrier between police and outside experts. It just makes no sense. Would would you uh, have any suggestions for the listeners who may find themselves in this type of situation about trying to get this second look or this outside agency to come in? Um, because we're dealing now with several different states. Uh, what would you recommend people do to, to try to get the ball rolled? Because I think right now with all the focus on policing and transparency and mm-hmm. and all mm-hmm. this kind of thing that's going on, this might be the time that uh, 
there'll be a sympathetic ear or two uh, available in the political realm. Um, so if, if that's the right way to go, what would you suggest is uh, action that can be taken? Absolutely. I think now is the time. And I think if we don't take this opportunity now, the results will be catastrophic for the cold case epidemic. Six to 7,000 cold cases are accumulated every single year in this country. We have over 250,000 unsolved cold cases. And what I believe needs to happen, uh, and this will take a lot of effort and a lot of time, but what I believe needs to happen is to legislate this issue on a federal level and to say to all the states in the United States, this is the protocol for how to address cold cases. If you follow it and establish a cold case unit and staff it appropriately and comply with all of these guidelines, you will receive federal funding. If you don't, you won't. It's as simple as that. We need to legislate this on a national level because we are dealing with too many jurisdictions. And there are over 18,000 law enforcement agencies in this country. And unless we do it at a national level, this crisis will never, ever be resolved and it will continue to grow. So my suggestion would be to go to your legislators, go to your government, talk to the people who represent your district in Congress and say to them, we need help. We are drowning. We, and we have to come together to do this. So maybe that's a project that the transparency uh, project, excuse me, take on is to, to try and bring everyone together to really create a grassroots movement because we're just, we're not as frustrated, but we're frustrated as well with how things are run. And I'm sorry, I don't have any more wisdom than that to offer. Jack, what do you think? Uh, I have to agree. Um, I think that, you know, first and foremost, the police agencies have to realize that um, times have changed. A lot of the cases mm -hmm. that Sarah and I have consulted on, you know, are very old cases. You know, we're talking decades old. And, you know, we have what's known in this country as the CSI effect with all the forensic science shows and everything. The, the public, um, you know, basically wants to see evidence, um, you know, and it's affected the trials across the country, um, you know, a positive as well as a negative way. Um, and we've had, uh, you know, significant technology advancements within the forensic science field. And there's a lot of um, expertise and there's a lot of, um, you know, individualization amongst forensic scientists. For example, um, you know, my experience working in a lab is I did mostly pattern evidence, which is prints, you know, from, you know, fingerprints, uh, tire tracks, footwear, um, but also in the labs, you know, there's the chemistry, which, you know, analyzes controlled substances, maybe arson residues, explosives. You have the biology side, which, you know, is mostly DNA now. You know, a few decades ago, DNA wasn't even considered um, as being part of the evidence. And if you look at the model that, you know, Sarah had mentioned the Utah uh, thing, there, there is a board of experts that includes not only forensic scientists, but behavioral scientists, medical scientists, psychiatrists. Um, what we need to do is we need to have law enforcement um, understand that they're not an expert in every aspect mm -hmm. of criminal law, constitutional law, as well as forensic science, anything that has to do with an investigation. And they need a team approach. They have to know what's available to them. Um, I refer to this as, you know, know what's in your toolbox. And then follow the evidence. Have experts that know what to look for, the advancements of technology, what's available. Take a look at individual pieces of evidence to see if they can, you know, come forward and get some information. And unless they open up the door and get outside people in, that's not going to happen. Um, in 2009, when the NAS report came out, the, uh, under a congressional mandate from the National Academy of Sciences, they stressed that forensic science labs should be separate from law enforcement. They should not have any influence over the lab themselves. Um, so the lab can operate independently by looking at the evidence objectively uh, without any 
predetermination that's given to them from the law enforcement and do a total new approach on this. And it's been proven to be effective in case after case after case, including um, individuals that years later have been exonerated through the Innocence Project um, for, um, you know, being wrongfully convicted. So it's, you know, it's not only finding people that are responsible for crimes, but it's also making sure that people that have been wrongfully held responsible for crimes are, are, are given their voice um, to, uh, to be exonerated. Um, and again, going, going back to, you know, the, the, the simple nutshell here is, is that law enforcement agencies have to realize that unless they have a team approach um, with experts across many, many, many disciplines, that they are not going to be effective in solving these cases. And one additional thing I would add, Denny, for our listeners uh, that I just thought of sitting here uh, to recommend as to what they do, I would suggest going to a couple of different websites. Uh, one is the American Academy of Forensic Sciences, and their website is aass.org. And they have experts from every single forensic discipline. If a family member would go to that website and look at the different members and perhaps reach out to one of them and ask, ask for some help. Who knows? It might happen. Another website is the Academy of Criminal Justice Sciences, and their website is acjs.org. And again, thousands of experts, not in the forensic sciences, but in things like what I do, behavioral analysis, crime scene analysis, and that might be an avenue that families can take as well, but in the meantime, but I truly do believe we need to legislate this to get a change. Well, I, I think that makes perfect sense, uh, the, the federal legislation, because, yeah, it is too much of an animal trying to get 50 different uh, jurisdictions to, mm-hmm. uh, to to change or legislate, so the, the federal would be the way to go. And I think what I'll do... Uh, is through the transparency project is uh, is push that is 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 approach that on a I national think that would be uh, wonderful. Okay, I will I will be working on that and I'll keep in touch with the uh, with you guys as well as I go just to run the stuff by and and see if uh, if I'm on the right track and and see what we can do because something needs to be done now is the time to do it. Right, Denny, and, and this has happened before with, you know, the federal legislation basically coming in or federal guidelines, and, you know, the states are sovereign, and they can, you know, with regards to investigation, because murder cases are investigated on the state level rather than the federal level, and as Sarah, Sarah mentioned, um, you know, they can withhold federal funding, and they, they've done this before in criminal justice with something as simple as, um, you know, drunk driving laws, um, you know, the standard of uh, conviction um, in the past, the presumptive level was 0.10% um, of blood alcohol, and now it's uh, 0.08% of blood alcohol. And that was set at a federal level. And the federal government basically said, look, um, we're uh, encouraging you to um, adopt this minimum standard of 0.08%. You're free as a sovereign state to adopt whatever level you want. However, because you get federal traffic uh, highway safety funds, um, if you don't adopt this, um, and this is, you know, basically for a federal uh, traffic safety, um, you know, you're just not going to get those funds. Uh, you can have whatever level you have, but you're not going to get federal funds. So needless to say, um, every state adopted mm-hmm. that minimum standard. Um, and uh, so that's, that's the way that the federal government can do it, is basically say, this is the standard. You can do what you want, but don't expect, you know, these types of federal funds for law enforcement investigations, forensic sciences, that type of thing, if you so to choose not to adopt this policy. And, Denny, I didn't mean to just throw you under the bus there and say the Transparency Project might want to mm-hmm. do this. We are more than willing to help, and I would love to write a write this with you and really get the ball moving. I wrote a similar piece of legislation in Massachusetts, which unfortunately was buried uh, and never brought forward, but it was actually called the Cold Case Accountability Act. And I would love to have that standard nationally. So we'll work with you. So apologies for just 
putting it on the transparency project. <laughs> That's okay, and I, I accept your offer, and I'm I'm looking forward to, to doing this. We'll get uh, we'll get the ball rolling on it. Wonderful. Now, uh, the the next thing I would like to discuss is the cold case epidemic, and uh, a little bit ago, Sarah, you mentioned the hundreds of thousands of uh, cold mm-hmm. cases, unsolved cases, and those numbers probably are a surprise to a lot of people. Uh, I think there's, a, like uh, John was talking about, the CSI effect and so forth. Uh, I, I think a lot of the general public, if they haven't been involved in these horrible situations of losing a loved one to, to murder or suspicious death, yeah. um, you know, they, they don't understand because they haven't had to deal with these types of, of issues. But it's uh, it's really scary, and those numbers don't count uh, deaths that are attributed to be suicides that may not have been, um, mm-hmm. or accidental deaths that may not have been. There are some of them kicking around, I'm sure, out there that mm-hmm. don't show up in the numbers. So um, I, I I really consider that to be a major problem, and I think public awareness is. Uh, you know, to try to get the public to support changes to, as I always use the term, level the playing field and give the survivors a, a, a fair shot at uh, getting resolution. Denny, you're so right. You know, there was a particular case I consulted on for the victim's sister, and um, the young man was allegedly killed um, by a passing vehicle. Uh, but yet there was absolutely no evidence to support that claim whatsoever. And the death was, in my opinion, mislabeled, and she doesn't have anywhere to turn. And it breaks my heart because there are so many cases that are misclassified, and that would be an almost impossible undertaking to try and ascertain how many of those there are. I, I don't even, I wouldn't even know where to start. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's uh, the one situation I'm involved with now is, is to me, it's, it's almost like shoveling sand on the beach. <laughs> you know, you shovel yeah. and shovel and shovel, yeah. but you don't make any progress. <laughs> That's an excellent uh, analogy. I completely agree with you. That's how I feel most of the time (laughs) with my work, uh, to be honest. But, um, yeah, um, the cold case epidemic is just rampant in this country. It's just rampant. And one, just one tiny aspect of the cold case epidemic is the massive amounts of indigenous native women that are being murdered in the United States and in Canada and in the U.S. We are just starting to address that one single facet of the cold case epidemic, whereas in Canada, they really dug their heels in and put together a fantastic team and started addressing this problem. So there are so many different elements of the cold case epidemic. There are 40,000 at least unidentified dead lying in morgues across this country. And as I said earlier, there's over 250,000 unsolved murders. One resource that our listeners can use is to go to the Murder Accountability uh, Project, MAP. Um, Their website is murderdata.org. If you want to see firsthand how many unsolved cases there are in this country, you can go to that site or go to the Charlie Project, um, which is a database of missing persons in the United States that are cold cases, um, or NamUs, which is trying to identify some, some of these unidentified dead. It's just staggering the number of cases out there. Well, don't you think there there should be a way to use a service like NamUs, for instance, because I'm I'm pretty familiar with NamUs. Um, mm-hmm. 
as a place because it is kind of a sharing point, especially for missing and un- unidentified persons, which again a lot of them are cold cases. In fact, most of mm-hmm. them are. Um, so if we can create something like that on the federal level, where that information is readily and easily shared by, I mean, families can input, law enforcement can input information, and then it's cross-referenced and cases are solved. So what's the whole I think up? that's brilliant, <laughs> Delilah. That's brilliant. I Come help us. <laughs> come work on our team. No, it's brilliant. And on a smaller, uh, or not a smaller scale, but on a different case example I can give to you, is um, there was a young woman murdered in the early 2000s by the name of Drew Shodine, um, beautiful young lady, and uh, a really tragic case in the sense that the murderer uh, was had just been released from prison in a neighboring state, and he was a sex offender. But at the time, we didn't have a national database of sex offenders that people could go to and look up. So by the time they figured out who this individual was, unfortunately, Miss Shodine had been murdered. And so that's where the National Sex Offender Registry came from. And I, I agree with you. I don't understand what the holdup is. I don't understand why this hasn't been federally legislated. There. There well, is a I... um, the FBI does have um, a um, basically a database. It's called VICAP. It's yes. the Violent Criminal Apprehension Program. And what that does, it looks um, at sexual assault cases, uh, solved and unsolved homicides, as well as kidnappings, missing persons, um, where foul play is expected or suspected, and also unidentified persons where foul play is suspected. And it's basically um, in each individual agency that's part of ICAP enters the information, and what it does is it possibly could identify trends over state right. lines, you know, identify serial killers, that type of thing, similar cases. Uh, but unfortunately, it relies on the individual agencies exactly. to enter the information. So we go back to the, the whole ego thing. If they're not entering the information um, and simply using ICAP as a information gathering thing, then that is you know, ineffective. Uh, So there are these things in place, but they have to be, you know, mandated use basically Mm -hmm. for them to be effective. And uh, unfortunately that doesn't happen in all cases. You know, some agencies fully comply and I'm sure there's other agencies that don't. Um, So, you know, it's, it's, it's out there that, you know, some of these things are in place. It just has to be utilized. I totally agree with that. I think, you know, why should we reinvent the wheel and try to come up right. with something different when we have the tools already in place? It's it's a matter of using them properly. I know when NamUs first started, it was, you know, we had a big campaign going on to inform coroners and medical examiners yeah. to to begin using it. And, um, you know, of course, a lot of them still don't comply, but... You can do what you can, but uh, you know, I think if we t- if we took VICAP, if we take NamUs, and like you said earlier, somehow mandate these agencies all over the country to share their information on these sites, or you know, I I know a lot of information they deem sensitive information, or they don't want the criminal to find out, or whatever. I don't know how that would all be sorted out. But the other aspect of this is citizens. You know, citizens volunteers yes. and citizens do yes. so much. Um, yes, they do. I mean, I look at at uh, websites like WebSleuth and how many times, you know, all the people gather together and gather up their information, and, and it's helpful in, in a lot of cases. WebSleuth um, is amazing. I love that. Isn't site. it? Right. <laughs> it's wonderful. Yeah, and unfortunately, right. VICAP is not accessible right, by, by, the any, by the public. It's only accessible by um, law enforcement. So VICAP um, is not effective, um, you know, for, unfortunately, for getting help from people outside of the agencies. But could not could it think... be retooled? I mean, it, it's, it's not set in stone that it has to be used that way, is it? 
Um, I'm probably the way that it was set up by the FBI. I know, you know, a lot of their databases are only accessible by law enforcement. You know, their DNA database, their uh, fingerprint database, their firearms databases, those are only accessible by, um, by, you know, law enforcement agencies. So I think the way BICAP is set up, and I could be wrong, is, is that it would only be, uh, it would have to be retooled somehow. You know, and I also think we are um, not intentionally, but we may be overlooking the aspect that we need law enforcement input as to what they want. What do they need help with? Where are they lacking? And what can we do to help as citizens? Because we need to stop uh, dividing the police and citizens. We have to stop that because most of us are on the same side. (laughs) And I think what's going on right now with the unrest against police departments and law enforcement, you know, these people are human beings. 99.9% of them are good. And I think we have to stop saying the police versus civilians because police are civilians they're just police officers and it's just i don't know i think that's a cultural barrier we really need to work on breaking down as well is to everyone come together to help to solve this problem i have to agree with sarah on that me too and i think denny yeah and uh you know, Denny, probably with your background too, you know, as a former law enforcement officer, you know, I've been, you know, I work for a large agency and I know what it's like when um, funding is cut. And yeah. if all of a sudden they say, um, you know, we have to cut back um, or, or there's a budget crisis, um, then the first thing to go uh, is training uh, yep. because that's <laughs> easy. Um, you have to have people in uniform that are responding to emergencies. Um, and what I've seen in, in my agency is a lot of times when personnel are down and there's not a new uh, class of recruits coming through, uh, a lot of times people are reassigned to patrol um, in uniform, and which basically reduces the detective ranks. Um, and I also know what it's like being in uh, doing major case investigations where you get a case and then another one comes in and the resource and there's not enough people to take the new case. So basically you end up with another one. And unfortunately you can't work the same case at the same time. Uh, So, you know, this whole thing, and I don't want to get in a political debate about, about defunding is actually the wrong thing. We should be throwing resources towards law enforcement um, to make sure that they can focus on, Doing things right. Doing things right um, and giving them the resources to correct the issues that are plaguing the system right now, um, you know, that we've talked about, you know, and, um, you know, getting back to that CSI effect, these cases aren't solved in 42 minutes like the TV show um, portrays that them being are um, solved. You know, some of them take, you know, years and years and, you know, with the advancement and, and technology, you know, I think it's, it's easier nowadays to solve cases in 2020 than it was in 1970s and 1980s simply because of the advancements in technology. But the law enforcement and your, your typical police officers don't know the advancements in the forensic sciences and, and what those uh, advancements could help their case. You know, you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago about uh, volunteers. And when I was uh, a few years ago, I was spending my time between New York State and Las Vegas. And when I was in Vegas, I signed up for the MVP program. It was a Metro volunteer program for Las Vegas Metro. Mm-hmm. And yep. but they utilized us volunteers for a variety of things. Uh, I worked the complaint desk, for example, and I would take complaints, you know, and citizens came in. I would make sure they got to the right the right unit or the right person after I took the complaint. Um, If it was something that I could do myself, uh, just give some advice to a person, uh, I could do that. Um, And I also started volunteering. Go ahead, Denny. I'm sorry. I I also volunteered for the Henderson Police Department. Henderson is a a city uh, adjacent to Las Vegas. And Mm -hmm. in there I was assigned a cold case. And 
what I would do is I would I went uh, two days a week, I believe, and I would spend eight hours a day, two days a week, mm-hmm. going over cold cases and mm-hmm. just sitting in the office, looking, going over reports, going over whatever was available, and then making recommendations to the uh, to my supervisor as to maybe something that, that could have been followed up on uh, at, at the time and wasn't, or maybe now the time had passed, maybe, you know, another run could be taken at a, an individual or that type of thing. And uh, I really enjoyed it. I mean, it was tedious sitting in, a, in an office for oh. eight hours a day oh. looking at the documents. But uh, I was such a horrible golfer that this gave me something to do that I really enjoyed. And it, it kind of kept me active, you know, in the uh, in the business. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there are an awful lot of people out there with the with prior experience that would, would, you know, have time on their hands and would love to get involved in something like that. I mean, Denny, that's essentially what we do. And Las Vegas, you brought up such a good point. They had one of the first successful cold case units in the country, which was manned with mostly volunteers. And they weren't necessarily people who had backgrounds in law enforcement. They were nurses. They were uh, you know, plumbers, whatever, priests, they would take all different backgrounds of vocations and put them to work because every single person has something to contribute. Um, And certainly law enforcement agencies have to screen these volunteers very carefully um, and do appropriate background checks. But the volunteer base, for and you know people are fascinated by true crime uh and they they want to be involved and they want to help and so long as law enforcement can do that safely um i think it's a fantastic idea yes and uh so citizens i think you were mentioning citizen involvement uh, citizens can go to their local police department, right, or sheriff's department, and or state police, whatever. And, and if, if they don't have a volunteer program, suggest that maybe they explore the idea, huh? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. absolutely. Kate, uh, I'd like to also, uh, when you get a, uh, a survivor in a situation where, where they're at. Uh, loggerheads, if you will, with the, the police agency doing the investigation. Uh, maybe they have a personality conflict. Uh, maybe the, maybe the survivor's being unreasonable. Maybe the police department's being unreasonable uh, or whatever, but they just aren't communicating or aren't getting along and uh, calls don't get returned and that type of thing. What What can a person in that situation do to, to try to get past that because you need lines of communication right. open. Right, and right, absolutely. Communication is one of the most essential elements of a successful cold case resolution. And communication with the family is even more critical because the family has information that law enforcement does not have sometimes, and they need to keep a good relationship with that family. But I have worked with so many families that have run into this issue, and the first thing that I always recommend to survivors is to request a victim advocate right off the bat. A lot of people that I consulted for who had lost loved ones in this manner were not aware that a victim advocate even existed or they weren't aware what it was. Um, So that would be the first step I would say is to ask the department um, for a victim advocate who can serve as a conduit between law enforcement and the family to maybe create a little more of a buffer and less tension between the two. The other thing I would recommend is to go go to the department, ask to speak to a supervisor, talk to them, air out your concerns. 
um, it, these types of situations are very, very delicate because, you know, what I found when I was hired by a family, um, it, it automatically created a contentious relationship between not only the family and law enforcement, but myself and law enforcement. Because if, you know, I would recommend that they go to a private investigator or an outside consultant like myself, but the rub there is that law enforcement perceives that as a lack of confidence that they can, on the family's part, that they can do their job and they perceive it as overconfidence um, on the part of the consultant. And it just starts the relationship badly. So doing anything behind law enforcement's back, I, I hate to say that, but it, it's not a good idea because they will be even more resistant uh, to help in the future. Right. And I think that there has to be a more proactive law enforcement approach uh, showing empathy and compassion yeah. in dealing with these with these families. Um, you know, even though a case is, you know, cold for lack of a better word uh, or it remains unresolved, um, you know, think about what it would mean for a surviving uh, family to get a call from the investigator on a significant anniversary right. like the disappearance or, you know, a date of, you know, unfortunate death and just say, look, I'm thinking about you today, and um, I, unfortunately I don't have anything to add from the last time we spoke, right. but I just want you to know that I'm thinking about you today, and that's showing you know, that, that they are vested um, as the family and that they know the significance of these uh, cases to the family. And unfortunately that doesn't happen as, as often as it should, if, if mm -hmm. at all. You know, it's very, very small cases from the, uh, you know, the surviving families that we've spoken to. That just doesn't happen. And in the few times that it does happen, it's significant. Um, it, it really, you know, shows that, the, you know, the investigators are human. They do have compassion. You know, they're not forgetting about the case because lack of communication, you know, the families are wondering, are, are we forgotten? Right. And again, this goes back to the issue of training. You know, in police academies, the ultimate goal in that training, Jack was a drill instructor um, for the Massachusetts State Police, and the goal at the end of the day is always for that person to come home alive from their shift. And because that is the ultimate goal, and of course, safety is critical, <laughs> but that they lose out on other types of training. And what I mean by that is police officers are often trained to look at every interaction as a potential threat to themselves. And that eliminates the capacity for empathy or compassion or humanity towards victims and their families. And sometimes as Jack just said, I think it goes so far with a family to just show them that you're human too. And the fact that, you know, by establishing a good working relationship as new information comes in, it, it opens up the doors for, you know, the exchange of that communication uh, a lot more. If, if a family mm -hmm. is upset with the way that their case is being resolved, uh, then you know, that, that might break down that two-way um, communication. communication. You know, that's unfortunate. And, you know, as Sarah said, you know, the survival mode uh, that pol most police officers have in, in dealing with the public is critical for their safety. But this is something different. This is, this is an investigator that's working on a cold case with a family. Um, and With is the operative word. Right, with well the family. And, you know, that us versus them attitude yeah. has no place. No. Um, it's, it's we're working together to find, what ha find out who is responsible for this tragedy and to hold them accountable. Um, and we're going to work together to make sure that we do this because the police are um, invested in solving the case as the family is. They, they have a common goal. So why not work together and, and put together the best resources to have a successful outcome in that goal? 
I couldn't agree more. And just uh, as an example of my New York case, the handling detective uh, in, in that death would not return calls. He, he was at, uh, at odds with the mother of the victim and uh, would not return calls. And uh, uh, I've worked with many in families. Like that. <laughs> and and that's that's maddening. I mean, to the uh, it so is. this this ad, advocate, the idea of having an advocate. And I know that uh, you know some departments and agencies, uh, DAs and the police departments and courts and so forth have advocates. Others don't. What are your thoughts on going to an outside advocacy group? I know there are some good uh, not-for-profits out there that would also mm-hmm. uh, be willing to assist. And and if the uh, if the survivor thinks that the advocate available through the uh, the DA's office or the police department or the court, uh, you know, may not be truly neutral, may if they're getting yeah, a county exactly. check yeah. or whatever. I, I, that, I've that, worked uh, with many families where the victim advocate was almost worse than, than law enforcement in terms of returning calls or giving accurate information to victims' <laughs> families. Right, and I, but, I think yeah. that every family should get whatever resources are available to them, um, no matter where they're coming from. Anyone that's willing to help, um, you know, if they have – you know, working for a victim, uh, you know, some sort of agency, I think that that's appropriate. Yeah, I think going to an outside agency, I mean, you, I would suggest informing the department that you're planning on doing that just so it doesn't come as a surprise to them. Um, I know the temptation is to not do that, but I really would recommend that the family tells the law enforcement agency what they're going to do and contact one of these outside agencies. I mean, there's the Carol Sun Foundation. They do amazing things. Uh, there's Texas EquiSearch. Uh, there's a lot of different, as you said, nonprofit agencies, Denny, that are ready and able to help in these cases. And it's worth a shot. Yeah, we're going to do a show, in fact, the end of September uh, about advocacy, and we're going to have the Citizens Against Homicide uh, talking about what they do and and similar organizations do. Um, We're almost out of time here. Uh, Delilah, do you have any final comments? Well, I totally agree with what you're saying with advocacy. I work with Q Center for Missing Persons, and we do – that is probably one of the things – yeah, it's one of the things that I think we do best. I mean, it's it's part of our mission. Um, you know, yes, we do some mm-hmm. investigating. We do we take tips. We do awareness campaigns. We obviously do a lot of searching. Uh, but I think that the heart and soul of the organization is advocating with the families. We we yeah. try to be you know the liaison between the family and law enforcement or, you know, try to, to be that buffer zone so that, you know, the thing that we don't want to do is to put them through any more agony. They're going through enough. And, uh, you know, my thoughts are, you know, it could be beneficial to all um, law enforcement agencies to fund some kind of mindset training <laughs> to where yeah. you know you yeah. you get so I much a, I think there's an attitude adjustment that needs to be made. I yeah. know, you know, there are millions yeah. of excellent officers out there, but it it just seems like every once in a while you run up against one that uh, <laughs> it's like hitting yourself with a brick wall. But yeah, that's yeah. that's my two cents worth anyway. <laughs> I completely okay, agree we're, with you, Delilah. We're, we're out of time, guys. Uh, John and Sarah, thanks so much for being with us today, and I'll be in touch on this legislation that we discussed Thank earlier you. in the show. Yeah. Thank you. And your book is available, uh, Who Took Molly Bish, on uh, Amazon and out, uh, online outlets? Yes. Yes, both. Um, thank okay. you so much to both of you for having us today. Yes, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Okay, and have a great day, and uh, 
to you and to our audience. Thanks for listening. Until next time, stay healthy and stay safe. 